Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 345. It's a special Purim edition, with Purim being this year, this coming Friday, in Eretz Yisrael, it's a Purim Mishulish, because you have Purim on Friday, and Shushim Purim, and then on Sunday, in Yerushalayim, and all of Eretz Yisrael. So it's a unique kvies, a unique schedule, and uh, so we'll focus this particular program mostly on Purim applied, chassidus applied to Purim and related topics. This program is dedicated in loving memory of Bitzal Jacobson, whose eighth yard site was on Zion Adir, dedicated by the Jacobson family. But before we get to Purim, let's begin with Inyana Diyema today. Today was Tes Odr, the ninth of Odr. 81 years ago, we're now Tovshin Payalov, in the year Tovshin, 1940, Friedrich Rebbe arrived at the shores of this country, New York, and established Chabad Labavish, the center of its activities here in New York, after the so many years that it was first in the city of Labavitch and then in Rostov and the different places that the Friedrich Rebbe traveled to, Esser Goli, as they say, 10 different exiles, 10 different places where Labavitch traveled to and finally came to New York where the Friedrich Rebbe established Chabad headquarters and then the Rebbe continued 10 years later, Tovshin Yud, until Mashiach comes. This appears to be the place where Lubavitch and its central activities emanate from. So let's just talk a few minutes about that. The Rebbe focuses and says that the Friedrich Rebbe's arrival to America began a new shlav, a new stage, because Chassidus now had arrived to Chatsi Kadra Tachten, the lower hemisphere. And we say Chassidus, Chassidus was here before, there were Chassidim here, we're talking about the Rebbe. Friedrich Rebbe. So what was the Chiddush of bringing, what's the innovation of it coming to the Chatsi Kadra Tachten? I mean, same planet. What difference does it make? Which hemisphere? But it makes a big difference. The Alter Rebbe has a Avort, a Torah, that's cited in Ayem Yem and other places from Tovkuf Samach Beis, that Matan Teireh happened in the Chatsi Kadra Elyon. Matan Teireh took place in the higher hemisphere, higher, the upper hemisphere. Not in the lower hemisphere. The Rebbe has a letter that he asked the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, what does that mean? Matan Teira affected the entire world. And the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe briefly explains, it was begilui, it was revealed in the upper and higher hemisphere, more concealed in the lower one, which is a central theme in Chassidus and in Teira in general. God, God fills all of existence. Not just Eretz Yisrael, which is the holiest land, the holy land. Not just the Beis HaMikdash, not just Kedish Kadashim. And yet we give special, special uh, focus and special Kedusha, Dafke and Eretz Yisrael, and their Gufa, the different levels, all the way to the Holy of Holies. The answer is because there are parts of the world where the layers are thicker, so from our perspective, there are more concealments, more shrouds, more partitions, more veils. In places where there's Gedusha, 
there are less veils. So the same thing, Matan Teda Begoli was far more powerful and its impact was on that hemisphere, the upper hemisphere, Chutzikadra Elyon. Like we say in the human body, the whole human body has a life force. And yet the mind, the brain, the head, the reish, has many more of the superior faculties and one more revealed energy and intensity. So the same thing is with the globe. The Chatzin Kadarelian is like the higher part of the human organism. Elam Kotnza Adam, a human being is a small universe. The universe is a large human organism. So it was more revealed. Thus, the lower hemisphere, because Matanteta happened on the other hemisphere, where now we're usually we're there, it's day, here it may be night, there's overlap. And therefore, it was considered a lower level, spiritual level. And as such, when Chassidus, when the Rebbe came to America, even this lower level now arrived, the Gilui of Primis Hatera, Mayonesecha, Chutzah. So it's another stage. And this would be the final stage, because there are no other hemispheres to conquer. Even though the Rebbe did refer to Australia and South Africa as Tachten Sheba Tachten, because not only, I mean, South Africa is in the same hemisphere, meaning when you talk about, when you talk about the, the um, eastern and western hemisphere, but it's the lower hemisphere because when it's, it's a slow, it's summer in South Africa, it's winter, and the same thing with Australia. So it's Tachten Sheba Tachten because it is both in the southern hemisphere and in the eastern hemisphere, in contrast to um, Eretz Yisrael. So if you think of hemispheres north and south, east and west, so America is the western hemisphere, whereas Israel is the eastern hemisphere, but South Africa and, and Australia are the lower, the southern hemisphere. Bottom line is that these are all stages in bringing elokus and bringing the divinity and the spirituality and the deepest levels of teda that reach to the highest levels of uh, godliness to the lowest sphere, hemisphere. And with that, we have the final step of permeating, from the bottom up, every part of the world with godliness. Now, it's interesting because this is also the process of the whole transmigration. The Alter Rebbe writes in Teirei that had Adam and Chava done their work and then not eaten from the tree of knowledge, it would have been like one great large torch that would have drawn all the sparks from all over the world from the top down. They wouldn't have to travel everywhere. But since that didn't happen, they multiplied their children, transmigration began slowly, slowly, because now you have to go to the sparks. You can't just assume they will be drawn to you. So if you think of it in that context, then 1940, 81 years ago, Tavshin, on this day, is another stage in that, that we are now going to the last sparks that are in the farthest recesses and corners of this earth. The new world, it was called. And as the Friedrich Rebbe made the point, America is nicht anders. America represented materialism. Yes, freedom, but materialism. And to bring Chassidus there, despite everybody's expectations, was a tremendous, Mesiris Nefes, and a tremendous chidush. There's that entry in the diary of the Friedrich Rebbe. 
where he says that uh, after he got off the boat, when he arrived on 9th of Adar on this day, 81 years ago, so they took him to the Greystone Hotel where he stayed for a while. The Friedrich Rebbe, though everyone expected he'd want to rest after a long ordeal coming from Nazi-ridden Europe, all those days on the boat, yet the Friedrich Rebbe wanted to speak, and he spoke. And I've heard this from eyewitnesses who were there. He spoke with a full passion. We came, I came here not to save my life. I didn't want to come here. Hashem, God led me here. I came here to show that in America we can make this just as the old home. Streets and homes and communities filled with Yiddishkeit, with Teda, with Mitzvahs, with Shabbos, and so on. He spoke as if he was speaking to millions of people. I heard that directly from some of the people that were there. With that commitment, that conviction. Afterwards, a few of his chassidim, his friends, his supporters, wanted to see the Rebbe. They came in to see him, and they told him, more or less, paraphrasing, Rebbe, we heard your words, we love you, we respect you. Because of that, we want to protect your honor and the honor of your holy father and grandfather and great-grandfather. What you said is not realistic. It's not going to happen here in America. So we just want you not to, we want to lower your expectations so you shouldn't be that disappointed. Friedrich Kareb writes in his diary after they left. He said, you could imagine. These are my friends, my supporters. You could imagine the tears that came out of my eyes the first night on American soil. Obviously, the Friedrich Kareb didn't listen to them, thank God, and forged ahead despite his challenges health-wise and otherwise. And look today. But this has always been the hallmark of what Jewish leaders are, especially the Rabbeim. So it wasn't just a new shlav. It was also with a full commitment that Mesir Snefers, exactly as it was in the other part of the country, the world. There, unfortunately, it came with a lot of tzaras. Here the challenge was apathy, American apathy, American comfort, indulgence. And the Rebbe took the mantle in 1950 and just accelerated it. So this is a very unique and special day in that sense because it's the beginning of a new stage of dealing with new challenges, the modern challenges of freedoms, of comforts, and bringing chassidus and bringing passion for godliness in a world that may feel it may not need it. So of course, this lays the groundwork for what we talk about chassidus applied. This is exactly our purpose and our goal, to apply chassidus to every given situation, not just when there's great darkness, but also when there's great comfort. You know, the COVID pandemic has definitely created a a global wake-up call, so people are more receptive. But the challenges are still there. And as the years rolled on and the work of the Rebbe expanded, finally 30 years ago the Rebbe said to us, 30 years, Tavshin Nun Aleph, this year will be also 80 years from the Rebbe came to America, a year later, Tavshin Aleph. So it's interesting, the years, 30 years ago, the words, Chavches Nissen. I did everything I can. The only thing I can do now is give it to you. Do what you can. Which is again, of course the Rebbe could do anything. But there are things Kav Yochli wants us to do from the bottom up. And then comes Gimel Tamus. So in itself, in this lower hemisphere, Lower, not just physically, lower spiritually. 
which as it began, the goal is to transform that and transform also in time, a period right now where we don't see Begali, we don't see revealed the Rebbe in full glory. And yet that exactly is the work. That in the deepest recesses and the darkest corners and in places where we may have thought would be difficult to bring godliness, to bring the divine purpose into our lives, to bring chassidus, this is what we do. And we do it with even more passion and more fortitude and more strength than ever before. That's the lesson of Tesadr. It's also the week of Pasha Tetzava, before we get to Purim. Pasha Tetzava reminds us, of course, the only Parsha after Moshe is born, Ba'ata Tetzava, doesn't mention Moshe's name. It says, Ba'ata, you shall command. Exodus brings that the reason it says Ba'ata because it's talking about the etzim of Moshe, not the giluim, not the revelations, the essence, which also explains, the Rebbe also explains with that, what it says in Sfarim, why is Moshe's name not mentioned? Because this is Zayin Adr, which was Friday, the day of his istalkus. So as a zeichet to that, his name is not mentioned. Referring also to Mechenin HaMesifrecha, when Moshe said to the Ebershter, erase my name if you're going to destroy the Jewish people. Why do we need to remember that? Because that was Moshe's Mesiris Nefesh. He gave his etzem. He was ready to erase the Gilui. Thank God that didn't need to happen, but we have a zeichel, we always remember it. But the positive side is that we get the etzem of something. Where do you get the etzem? Dafke when it's concealed. Specifically in the Chatzik in the lower hemisphere, which initially was devoid of, and not in a revealed way, Matan the Jewish people, all the revelations that took place until the emigration here to this country. And even in a place like that, you reveal, and when you do that, you reveal the etzem, because the etzem is necessary and is revealed specifically in the most concealed places. And what do we reveal? It talks about the mitzvah of Meneda. Shem and Zayezoch, to take the pure oil, and oil we know is the level of primis atayda, in primis rozin, the rozin, the secrets of the secrets. And who is it revealed by? As the Rebbe also explains in the Maimah that he said in Tavshin Mem Aleph, which is 40 years ago, the Maimah he gave out, the last Maimah the Rebbe handed out before Chavzayin Adir in Tavshin Nun Beis. So we have our lessons, my friends, from both Tess Adir and from Ba'ata Tetzav. So then let us that lead us into Purim. So I received many different questions about Purim. But before I go there, yeah, I, I forgot to mention one more question that came in about Tesadr. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, spiritual guide to the, of the multiverse, Elamis in Misper, as you discussed in episode 298, this goes back a while, back to pre-COVID, because remember we're coming now to a year from that event or event, that pandemic that broke out around a year ago, at least when we became aware of it, Purim time. So then we changed subjects. So now I'm going back to a subject that I spoke back then almost a year ago. So there you discuss the evils of communism, which our Chabad ancestors escaped, especially the watershed moment when the Friedrich Rebbe came to the USA, the base for Chabad Chassidus until Mashiach comes. Nowadays, with the rise of Marxist communists, 
progeny in the USA, such as well, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and their ilk, what steps should we be taking to protect ourselves and our communities from the evils of their godless propaganda and policies? Well, my response, very direct, is exactly what Tessa did represents, exactly what Tehrech Siddhis Bechlal represent. The best way to dispel darkness is to increase in light. We have the freedom, we have the ability, we have the technologies today to bring Tehrech Siddhis everywhere and to everyone. The greatest defense is offense. Instead of fighting darkness, the way is to bring clarity to people, understand the importance and the value of living a godly life, how true morality and ethics and our highest standards and levels of refinement are enhanced by recognizing that we don't worship ourselves. We have some greater purpose, an eye that sees, an ear that hears. We respond and our servants, agents, ambassadors of a higher reality. The more we teach that, the more we explain it in terms that people can relate to, that enhance their lives, that enrich their lives, the more you will automatically eliminate the forces, whether the communist forces of old or the semblance of it today. I don't want to label anybody by any names. I don't believe that's the way to go. I do believe, however, that we have what we stand for. Our job, each one of us, each one of you, is to use your skills, your tools, your sphere of influence to spread the message of Tehran Chassidus and explain how that leads to the best possible and most productive and meaningful life possible. When we do that, you're giving people a true alternative. When you don't do it, God forbid, there's a vacuum. And who fills the vacuum? All the ideas... All types of ideas out there. Many of them which are really godless, as you point out. Many of them that don't have the value that, they sh- that we deserve in our lives. So that's the immediate answer. It's not a political, it's a spiritual approach to life. Exactly like we learned from Hanukkah and Purim. is through spreading the light of Tehra and Mitzvahs. Those that have political influence, use it by all means, but also in the spirit of what God wants through the the Torah of light that he's given us. Okay, so with that, let us go straight into topics, Purim-related topics. Got a lot of questions. I don't think I can go through all of them. I'll try my best. And let's begin with, uh, since Shabbos Zohar, which was yesterday, you always read Parsha Zohar, the Shabbos before Purim, because Haman HaGogi came from Amalek, from, from Amalek. And therefore, you have, you, you, when we erase the name of Haman on Purim, when we celebrate the victory over Haman, so before remembering it is the Shabbos. Before we remember it, Shabbos Parsha Zohar, the only Parsha that L'chol Adeis, L'chol everybody holds is a, to, a mitzvah da'araisa to hear because of the mitzvah of Zohar HaShashar Osu Amalek. The simple obvious reason is because Amalek represents both physically and spiritually our arch enemy. On a physical level, when the Jews left Egypt, Amalek was the only one that had the, the nerve, the chutzpah, of people who had just suffered so greatly You'd have a little compassion. It would be just, imagine the Jews coming right after out of the Holocaust and someone attacks them. 
Amalek attacked the people in the most vulnerable time. Because Amalek represented, like Nazis, represented a reprehensible force, spiritual force, that was antithetical to everything that's divine. Asher karcha baderech, the deeper meaning karcha, they cool you off. Apathy, indifference, coldness, lack of warmth and passion, which is so essential to life. The kiss of death. Amalek is also the gematria, the same numerical equivalent of the word suffolk, doubt which is another form of apathy, throwing doubts, which cools you off, you know, when you're very committed and passionate and someone just throws a doubt. It's much worse than having someone that disagrees with you because the doubt then starts plaguing you. There's no joy than one that resolving doubts. Put him the joy of put him, resolving the doubts. So the war with Amalek, Mohammed with Amalek, in every generation, as the, as the Torah says, is one in our hearts and our souls. According to everyone and most people, Amalek, physical Amalek has been eliminated. But the spiritual, the psychological, the emotional one still haunts us in so many different ways. And that's why it's a mitzvah that I said, because when you have such doubts, it infects, it pollutes every part of our lives. You can't do anything when you are somewhat paralyzed by doubt, by coolness, by aloofness, detached, detachment, it lies at the heart of every commitment that you're involved, that you're committed, that you're forging ahead with clarity. You know, today people talk a lot about the uncertainty of our times due to the pandemic. It's another form of amalik, uncertainty. Where does certainty come from when you look higher? You look, you raise your, head, your hands and your eyes to heaven. And you find clarity in fulfilling your mission in life. Yes, there are many things that are unknown. But the unknown, the key is not that there is unknown things. The key is that it should not control your life. That there are doubts, there are doubts, but they shouldn't control your life because you have a mission to fulfill and whatever is going on. Even if the mission means that you cannot do certain things that you would have done a year or two years ago, it's still your mission. So the battle with Hamalek affects us all the time in every possible way. It's the, the antidote. And that's what Purim represents. Sochid represents. Remember. Remember where you come from. Remember what Amalek did to you, so you shouldn't allow it to affect you. Remember the positives as well. And that is that we were sent here on a mission by God, each of us given indispensable tools and skills to accomplish an indispensable mission that you and only you can accomplish. And you have all the strengths you need. That is the essential message. And that leads us into Purim. So, in, and, and this discussion of eradicating Amalek, here's a question. Rabbi, can you please explain the mitzvah of eradicating Amalek? I have a tough time wrapping my head around this. I don't mean this in a brazenly negative way, but here's my question. Hashem creates a nation that is so evil, makes it a commandment that they should be wiped out. This seems kind of twisted to me, especially after learning, as you mentioned in your previous episodes, that Hashem doesn't create anything levatala, for waste no purpose. And also that Hashem was happy in creating all of his creation. Comes this mitzvah of, obliter- of obliterating a nation that Hashem creates at the outset to be bad and to require destroying. If you can please bring light to this concept. Thank you tremendously. Okay. 
So I brought some light. I'll bring some more light to it, hopefully. I explained what it is in concept. Remember, it all begins on a higher spiritual level. So the question is an excellent question. Not just how you can eradicate. Why would God create it in the first place? But let's go back to the first question of all questions. Why did God create existence in the first place? And a world where we can make a mistake. Those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. In the language of Chassidus, created a world that had a total concealment. Concealing the divine presence from us to allow for us to be an independent consciousness, an entity, in order to fulfill the purpose of the desire that they create a home, a dwelling place in this lowest and darkest agnostic universe. So God created, why did he create an agnostic universe? And then tells us to obliterate the agnosticism that can potentially also lead to atheism and denial and making mistakes. Because that's the purpose of creation. The Alter Rebbe says we don't have a reason because a taivin is stuck in kasha. We can't ask such a question because this goes all the way to the essence of the divine that precedes questions and logic. And yet that we know, as Chassidus says in certain Maimodim, we don't know why, but we know what. What? To go into this lowest of worlds. Not like the soul is in heaven, in Gan Eden, in paradise, studying Torah, doesn't have all the challenges, health, corruption, duplicity, and all that comes with this hostile world. And there, bring light and transform. We know what we need to do. Amalek is a manifestation. If there was no tzimtzum, there'd be no Amalek. Obviously, it's a far cry from the tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is just concealment. But when it evolves, ishtalshlus, level by level, in the language of Chassidus, and more veils, and more partitions, and more concealments, and more darkness, and more coverings, at some point, you have the potential for Aniva Afsied, me and nothing else, which is essentially what Amalek stands for. God wanted to have a manifestation, just like He wanted us to go out of our limitations and constraints, which is Mitzrayim, but didn't suffice with just a spiritual archetype, but created a physical Egypt. The same thing, there is a nation that manifested this. Did they have free will? It's a good question. The same question is asked about the Egyptians. The Rambam asked, how could you punish them when, they, when God said to Avram Avinu that, your, that uh, to your grandchildren will be in a land that's not theirs? So God already decreed the slavery in Egypt. So there's two answers, the Rambam, the Ravid. One is that God didn't say which Egyptian. So each one had their free will. Another answer is that they did much more than what was, what was asked of them. The same thing with Amalek. Amalek, you could argue, was a nation made a choice, made a bad choice. It was due to their own spiritual depravity and due to their own spiritual um, disconnection, dissonance, and ultimately led them to be that. It's an interesting discussion that God pushed their hand. He also hardened Pharaoh's heart. So on one hand, you can say it's an outgrowth of the Tzimtzum, and on the other hand, you can say that partially also due to them. But regardless that there's a manifestation of Amalek, of doubt, of everything that is antithetical to the divine, that is what Amalek is. And God is saying eradicate them. This isn't a personal thing. Eradicate this whole very corrupt nation. 
So if you knew, and God told you that every man, woman, and child is of the Nazis, a Nazi, and they will attack you. Coming from God, we don't have the right to make that decision. I once wrote a whole article on this topic. You can look it up at MeaningfulLife.com. I think it was called Jewish Violence, Religious Violence, sorry, Religious Violence. And I discussed this whole thing with Amalek. So it's definitely an anomaly. It's not something you can just say every nation has that. And it describes a very depraved and very corrupt people. But essentially it's rooted in a spiritual place. And that's ultimately the answer. So it's not God created them and says now eradicate them. It wouldn't make any sense. It comes down to a whole process of a condition, a psychological archetype that exists among us. And as I said, till this day, even though there may not be an Amalek right now, physical in a human being, but we all have the archetype, the, that spirit that possibly can infect us that we need to totally eradicate. Another question in this regard, King Saul messed up. He didn't obey God's commandment that the prophet ordered him to, which was to kill every man, woman, and child of Amalek. He had Rahman as compassion for a little child that would ultimately bring to Haman. And he let King Agog live, and from Agog came Haman and many others who have caused harm to our nation. So why do we hoot and holler and sound groggers after hearing Haman's name, and we don't sound groggers after hearing King Saul's name? After all, Saul was as much part of the problem as Haman was, and therefore his name also deserves to be blotted out. Well, not quite. Yes, Saul did what he had to do, but Haman is not off the hook. Saul made his mistake, and we're told about it. But you cannot compare someone who actually called for genocide of every man, woman, and child. It would be like saying that if somebody had fed Hitler some type of um, poison, someone behaved in a way that caused him to become the anti-Semite he became, therefore that person should be obliterated like him. So I think it's a little extreme. I don't know if you're asking this facetiously or you meant it seriously, but you can't compare the two. There are things that happen at the root source of something that can be a beginning of a problem. And had you done it and nipped it in the bud, it would have resolved, it would have preempted the issue. But once it became the issue, Haman, of course, is the protagonist and his family and all those that participated. Okay, so... More on this topic, especially on Amalek that I've discussed here and much more in previous episodes, please go to episodes 174, 207, 252, and 298. All these course references, you can go to chassidahsupply.com. is a full, complete website with all the previous episodes archived where you can write your question anonymously. Other resources are there on learning chassidahs and applying chassidahs. Began now a new radio show. We've done now two weeks. Last night was the second week. On Tanya. Tanya applied. If you go to chassidahsupply.com slash Tanya, you'll find all the details, where it's broadcast, where you can listen and view it even afterwards, like today. Just beginning, just up to the introduction of the Alter Rebbe to Tanya. So that's an exciting new project. Please take part of it. Take advantage. In English, learning Tanya and applying it to our lives, which is the main focus, making it relevant. And more resources at chassidahsupply.com, including the essays, thousands of essays, and now also creative submissions of applying chassidahs to a contemporary issue or challenge in our lives. 
So those are cross-references. Let's now go to um, some more Purim-related questions. Just make sure I'm covering everything here. Why does the Megillah of Esa start with a party that happened years before the main part of the story? Yes, we know that the story of the Megillah expand over seven to nine years. It's interesting. If you lived there, you wouldn't have even noticed many of these events. They seem so random. When you look in retrospect, you see it was all planned. You can connect the dots and see the Nes Melubish Beteva. Because it wasn't an open miracle like the parting of the sea. But then you see all the dots, and they all lead to what? To our redemption from a genocide that could have destroyed the entire Jewish nation who lived in the 127 countries in Ahasuerus's empire. So the story begins and does not conclude till nine years later, depending where you begin counting. So the question is, why does why the story begin with a party? We know the Iker Anez began with That night when Ahasuerus had insomnia. And that's why we actually, like the Mariel says, we begin reading the Megillah a little louder there. The voice goes up because it's the beginning of the miracle. So why do we need to know this beginning? The Rebbe has a powerful sikh where he answers this question. To explain how every detail in life, even things that don't seem connected, are all leading to a greater narrative. Because the story actually does begin with the party. The party, and then Ahasuerus summoning Vashti, she refusing Vashti's execution, and then, of course, looking for a new bride, a new wife, Esther. And that would lead to the steps that Esther would ultimately be a key element in the miracle of Purim. But we learn more than that. We learn the details of the party. Because everything is part of a divine greater plan. So when you look at your own personal life, you don't just look at the major events. You look at even the things, the details. The party you may have gone to, what was served, what kind of garments they wore, what kind of kalim vessels were presented. Everything is part of the story of Ahi B'meach the story of Purim, the story of divine providence. That's why we begin with the details. If you think about it that way, life takes on a whole different shape. So some things lead directly, and you see, okay, these are key elements in the narrative, and others may not be so directly, but they're also part of the narrative. And it all elevates it in that way. So Purim extends far more than just the miracle that we were saved after the plot and conspiracy of Haman, but even the details of our experiences in life all get elevated in this great, powerful miracle, which is happening right now in our own lives. We all have miracles happening. Not necessarily miracles that defy nature and suspend nature in the physical sense, but still, miraculous events of an invisible hand that connects the dots of your life. Your life is, is ordained. Your cho- you have your choice whether to embrace it and to seek out that higher narrative. But your life that has, been, that has been choreographed. Hasdracha Pratis is called. And now it's up to us to, to recognize it and then to fulfill the purpose for which we were placed here. So every part of the story is, is vital. 
So next time you're invited to a party, COVID, after COVID, whatever the situation is, or invited to any event, you may think, okay, it's a trivial part of my life. Maybe it's connected to business, to, to leisure. The truth is your goal is to elevate it, to make it part of a bigger divine narrative that leads to greater things. That's our mission. So the beginning of the Megillah has lessons for us as well, just as, as the later parts of the Megillah have. Next question, secular names. Is there a lesson to be learned from the fact that Psachi and Hadassah are called by their secular Persian names Mordechai and Esther in the Megillah. And how do we reconcile this with the teaching that we merited the Geula of Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, because we didn't change our Hebrew names? Excellent question. But let's continue the theme of Purim. The theme of Purim, the theme of Pesach, is revealed miracles. That, where you saw with your own eyes, First of all, the miracles in Egypt, the plagues, as we recreate on Pesach night, the Seder, and then the exodus from Egypt. And this is something you should always remember every generation, and every generation, every day, as the Alter Rebbe adds, a person has to remember being freed from the constraints of Mitzrayim, from the word constraints. That's called a Nes Goli, a revealed miracle in the month of Nisan, from the word Nes, Nisim Nisim, the many miracles that happen. Then there are Nisim that are deeper, but more concealed. You don't see necessarily a, a major revelation. But when you dig deeper, and you connect the dots, you see the inner choreography. So Purim, and the Megillah, it's called a Nes Melubish Beteva, a Nes that's there, but it's masked, camouflaged in nature. And that's what the word, very word nature means, from the word Tovu, submerged, like you throw an object in a river, in a, in a sea. It gets submerged, you see only the face of the ocean. Nature conceals its consistency. Every day the sun rising and all the different rules of nature that govern laws of nature conceal the inner invisible hand of God. Comes Purim and teaches us there is that hand. And that's why the name of God isn't mentioned in the Megillah. Because it's about discovering it through us by recognizing the hand of God. It's not revealed on its own. And that's also why the names of Mordechai and Esther used Afka Persian names. It's not, God forbid, because they were in any way assimilated or compromising the names. It was because it was to reveal the divine even in Persian names. That even in the rules of Persia of old and, the, and, and in the court of Achashverosh comes a Mordechai and Esther. And the Torah speaks, and the Gemara tells us that the names, even though they're Persian names, also minatayim minayim. Hey, where do we find Mordechai in the Torah? So the pasuk brings Mardrer, Esther, Haster, Aster, Ponai, that define the divine. And Haster, Aster, Ponai, of course, actually means God's face is concealed. Esther's name itself tells us that divine is concealed in it, because here the goal is to reveal what, what which is concealed. If they had used the names Psachia and they had used the name Psachia and Hadassah, then yes, it would be a revelation of the divine, but it would be a, a Shloshna Kedish, holy names. Wouldn't, as we spoke before about Chatzik Kadratachn, it wouldn't have been through the garments of the lowest levels. We wanted it to be in that language, in that country, in Shushan, in the nations, in the 127 nations 
of Persia. That that's where the divine should be revealed. Not necessarily only in the holy places, but even after a decree that came from there. So by Pesach we learn, by Mitzrayim we learn they didn't change their names because firstly Pesach is all about revealed. Revealing. Not finding it in the concealed. And number two, to demonstrate they did not assimilate, did not in any way compromise themselves. Purim, the goal is to transform from that which is concealed. And it's not because they were assimilated, it's because they're elevating these names. Practically speaking, till this day, we maintain our Hebrew names. But we do speak in English, or we speak in other foreign languages that are not Hebrew, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tehideir Mishpatim, to elevate and transform the secular world, as long as it's not opposite of Allah, our goal is to transform it and turn it into language, like I'm doing right now, language that expresses divine ideas, Teirech, Siddhis, and so on. Next question. Whatever happened to Vashti? Most people think she was killed, but it doesn't actually say that anywhere in the Megillah. Correct? It doesn't say it. But Rashi says it specifically a few times. Even if it says Vashti should be removed, but he listened to his advisors who said that she should be punished. So Rashi says clearly that she was executed. There are commentaries that wonder, I didn't do full research, I can't give you a full picture on it, but for all practical purposes, Vashti was eliminated. That's why later Achishver says he remembered Vashti. If she was around, why didn't he just bring her back? So some say because he had already made a decree. But he could have also changed his decree. So most likely, and especially according to Pshat, Vashti was executed. And that, of course, set the stage for uh, Esther rising to the scene. Same question someone asked about Achashverosh. What happened to Achashverosh after the Purim story in the Megillah? Does the Megillah say what happened to him after the Purim story? Did he remain married to Esther even after finding out that she was Jewish and knowing that according to the rules of her religion, she really wasn't supposed to be married to him? But only did so in order to be able to save everyone from Hyman's wicked, wicked decree. We don't have much about what happened afterwards, but there is a medrash. There's a medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, Shmini, Parsha Yud Gimel Hey, if you want to look it up, where he talks about this and he says, well, talks about, he mentions that Duryavish, the king Melech Duryavish, mentioned in Daniel, mentioned in Ezra, and other places was a child of Esther and Achashverosh. Darius is the English pronunciation of this king. The Medrash actually puts it this way, that this king, Deryovish, had a pure, a pure source, which was his mother, Jewish mother, of course, and an impure one, which was Achashverosh. Now, when exactly he was born? Was he born during the story of Purim? Or afterwards... The Mashmois, it seems afterwards. So it seems that they stayed together. I don't know how long, but that's something that needs more research. The reason I'm mentioning it, even though I don't have a full answer, only what I've just brought, because I'd like this to be a, partner, a partnership. Maybe some of you can know the answer, or some of you may have not do the homework. I would really appreciate if you could help me with this, look into it, and send me a note. You could either do it at chsidasupply.com, you could send me an email, at simon at meaningfullife.com 
And if anybody has more information, what happened to Achishverosh afterwards? In some books, but I don't believe the Torah books say that he ultimately was killed, which was not uncommon then. And um, uh, so, but the question is the Torah sources, and of course, what happened with Esther. We know Mordechai remained in Shad HaMelech, but for how long? So this is something that we can look into. I was going to look into Seydan Adedas, but I really did not have the time, just being honest. But I'm going to look in other places as well, but if you can help out, it would really be appreciated. L'tayelus harabim, for the benefit of many. Okay, next question. These questions came in from people like yourself, and that's why I always respect someone asks a question. Some our questions are more directly chassidus-applied material, some less. But regardless, they're interesting questions because they are, of course, people that impact our lives, the lessons of Achashvedish and Esther and so on. Did Haman work in a barbershop before getting a job in Achashvedish's court? <laughs> he actually did. The Targum Sheni tells us, I was told this fact by a friend, but it was said in a way to disparage and embarrass Haman. What's wrong with being a barber? It's an honest profession and it's even helpful to the community, spiritually as giving someone a haircut prevents a chatzitza, a block, and beautifies the mitzvah of tefillin. And my friend answered that it says, some, it says someone who is a barber is, disqualified, is disqualified from being Mashiach. Rabbi Jacobson, what are your thoughts? Thank you, and happy Purim. Okay, interesting question. Does say so on Targum Sheni, which is one of the commentaries on, on the Megillah that adds a lot from different midrashim. The key thing is, yes, to focus on, because Haman made believe that he was a deity. He made believe he was someone to be worshipped. And any reminder, there's nothing wrong with being a barber, but any reminder for Haman, for him it was an insult. And there are many other things that Medrash, the Medrashim, and the Targum Sheni say about Haman. So it was really to focus on and demonstrate that this man was no deity. He was no god. wasn't worth worshipping or bowing to. That's the main focus there. So it's not about disparaging or in any way giving any bad name to barbers. It's actually a very important job and it's, uh, one, it's really about hum- humility. Had Haman been compl- felt a compliment being a barber, it wouldn't be a problem. He did not feel that. I mean, his, pro- his, uh, his uh, what shall we say, his uh, partner in arms many thousands of years later who we call, um, also with an H, Shemach Shemei, the head of the Nazis, also did not like to be reminded of some of the more menial work that he did in his early time. So the Teter B'Fedish mentions it, and it's part of the breaking of the Klippa, of these, of these horrible and terrible forces in history that, that caused so much damage and could have caused so much damage. Next question. Masks. Let's talk about masks. The Hebrew word panim, meaning face, has a similar root to the word pnimius, which means our inner selves. Are we covering our inner selves by wearing masks? And of course, that immediately answers, this is a question I see you mean, is probably not just the masks that we wear on Purim, but also COVID masks. Is there a connection to the masks that people wear during this pandemic? So the first thing, let's talk about masks in general. One of the reasons given why, why Purim people wear masks is because Purim, everything is masked. As I said, the God's name is masked, the miracle is masked, the events. So wearing a mask is like exposing that everything is a mask. 
and there's really some deeper story behind it. That's one very basic reason. But we don't wear masks all year round. We're not supposed to wear masks. Because a mask is a concealer. As you rightfully point out, the name for ponim and primis go hand in hand. In English, when you say the face of something, the face can be very different than what's underneath the face. And Sometimes you say on the surface level and the face of it. But when you look deeper, it's not that way. Hebrew, Lashon HaKedosh, tells you a true face. Chochmas Adam Ponov, a true face. The windows to the soul are what are the eyes. The face reflects a deeper you. The fact that someone can be Echad Bepeh, Echad Belev, a duplicitous. Teche Nat Kebare, which means you say one thing and your heart is, is feeling another. You're smiling to someone, but you're ready to stab them, God forbid. The face, the outer face, is not reflecting the inner you. That's considered to be not proper. Duplicity. But, 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 but when you know it's a mask, and Ampurim, the goal is not to mask in order to hide. In mask to reveal that all this is a mask. The world is a mask. The story, the events in our lives are masking the deeper story. The masks of COVID is, if indeed it's being told to us by medical authorities, is for a different reason. It's not about revealing deeper things. It's about simply avoiding passing on something that may be destructive. I know there's a debate about it. I'm not getting into that. I'm just pointing out, even if one needs to wear a mask and there's a reason to do so, it's for that. (coughs) Excuse me. It's for that purpose. Can you learn deeper lessons from it? I'm sure you can't. Okay. But sadly, most people do wear masks, either physically or, or emotionally, and they do conceal their feelings, masks to please and satisfy different people. So this is part of the challenge in our lives, is can we finally come to a point where we can trust someone, where we can allow our inner to shine out to the outer. That's the ultimate goal. But we have to know to do it in the proper way. You see, even with the Eberster, it says that only when Mashiach comes, that your master will no longer conceal himself with a, uh, with a garment. And your eyes will see the, your master. As the Alter Rebbe brings these verses in Peter Klamadvov, chapter 36 in Tanya. Why? Because the, the Gilead Lekus will no longer be concealed. Just as the Shem Havai is written, that's how it will be pronounced. Whereas today, we can't pronounce it because the recipients could not deal with and contain that powerful energy. Okay. The next question, I, I, you know, I'll read it only because someone wrote it. I'll, write, I'll read it a little more respectfully. Write about the Rebbe. Since it's a custom to wear costumes, why didn't you find that by the Rebbe? So first of all, it's barely a custom. What do I say barely? It's a custom. It's no mitzvah to wear. You don't see it anywhere as a halacha. It became something, especially for children. Some adults do that as well. Is it a necessity? Definitely not. Is it part of how the masks of Purim? It's an extension of that, but it's definitely not something that the Rabbeim did. And for obvious reasons, the Rebbe is a melech. By him, there's the no masks. Everything is begili. So it doesn't even pass to wear one. Moshe Rabbeinu wore a masfa, which was a mask, in order to conceal 
not to conceal in order to allow the Jews to look at him. In Ayin Beis, there's actually a whole piece where he talks about that the Masfa is not like a Levush HaMaster. It's not to conceal. It's for a different reason altogether. Exodus explains why. But by Rabbeim, it doesn't even say this whole idea. The Gilead Lekus is there, and you want it to shine. That's the most basic level answer. I don't think I have to go deeper into it. Okay, what is the origin of Hamantashen? Is it because Haman wore a similar shaped hat, or is the Hamantashen based on a similar shaped pastry that Persians ate during a, festival, a fertility festival? Since I spoke about this, I'm not going to go over it again. Please go to episode 299. I address this in more detail. I know you'd rather me say it right now, but cross-referencing ref- cross doesn't hurt. Okay. There's one more. Let me see where we are here. Yeah, I'll do it. The Rebbe spoke in Tavshim Dalad, 1984. He spoke about a very mysterious, bizarre, and strange Gemara where I'm putting, Kom l'Rabba v'Shachta l'Rabzeira. Rabbi rose and shecht. Literally means that he shechted. He, uh, he uh, uh, ritually slaughtered Rabzeira. Because they reached a state of Adela Yoda, which is beyond the rational, super rational state. And then he revived them through a miracle. The next year he wanted to do it again. Rabzeira said, Not every day do we have miracles. So the Rebbe went through this what kind of Gemara is this? What does this mean? So the Rebbe answered briefly that the Nukudah is no. God, God forbid that he says the word shacht, sheichet. Shacht, ein v'shachet elo moshach. Moshach means to elevate. Moshach means to, to uh, expose, to draw. That Rabbi, whose name is Rabbi, which means great, and Rabzeru is small, meaning a smaller level, he revealed to him Seder Satera. They drank wine. Wine is primis atera, and through primis atera came kleis anefesh. It caused Rabzeda to expire. His soul actually expired. So it was literally, but it was not with a knife. And then he brought him back. That's why he offered him to do it again next year. But no, not, you can't always bring me back. So it's really a story of kleis anefesh. It's interesting that Rebbe said this in Memdal, but already in Tovshen Ches, at the end of the Purimimer in a footnote, the Rebbe already explains this answer just in a few lines, two lines. So here's the question. In the famous and beautiful Sikha where the Rebbe explains the story of Rav and Rabzeda and explains that Rav killed Rabzeda by teaching him too much Teda, well killed, he elevated his soul, and therefore Kleis HaNefesh means the soul is so entranced and so inspired in ecstasy that it leaves the body. If the whole purpose of creation is to refine the world, to reveal godliness, and one of the ways to do that is by learning Teda. How is it possible to learn too much Teda? Shouldn't it be the more Teda we learn, the better? Also, for those who never had the chance to read that Sikha, or for those who want to read it again, can you tell us in which Sefer or where online it can be read in its entirety, preferably in English? Thank you and have a happy Purim. And may the joy of Purim be so great this year that it cannot be contained in one day, and it shall last the entire year, and everyone in the community should be able to experience it and be inspired by it. Another question regarding this. After Rav killed Rav Zera and then resurrected him the next day, what happened to Rav Zera's wife? After he was resurrected, did she have to marry him again? Or is their original marriage halachically permitted to just continue? So to answer the question, well, the Rebbe addresses it there. By Matan Teira, we could ask the same question. 
every one of the ten dibris, the ten statements, the ten commandments, it says their souls expired from the great revelation. In other words, the Gili HaTeda, yes, is a powerful revelation, but it has to be in Kalim. And if it's not, we see the story. They went into base into the Mishkan, Kedush Kadoshim, unprepared, and they expired. Rabbi Akiva and his three colleagues, Rabbi Akiva, Nichnus B'Shalom, Yosef B'Shalom, the other three, when they saw these deep secrets, it affected them negatively. One died, one went mad, one became an apostate. So Gilead Teter, for most of us, we don't learn on that level. But the stories with the Alter Rebbe learning with Avram HaMalach, the Maggid's son. And the man, he saw the Maggid's son was about to expire and he gave him a bagel and butter to ground him. The Rabbeim wore a kerchief, a handkerchief. They wrapped a handkerchief around their hands when they said a mimer, type of grounding. The Nevi'im, when they said prophecy, held on to something physical. In other words, when you reach high spiritual levels, even Teda, yes, the goal is to bring it down, but, but the person may not be always on that level. That is why what happened to Rabbi Rabzeda was something that was not, at the end of the day, the Kavona. The intention was good. It was a big gili, and it needed a miracle, but you need to do Eidah's Bekelim. It was Rabzeda, Rabbi, Rabbi from the word Rav, but Rabzeda Zeira did not have the containers. So that's the word here. So all Giluim, as great as they are, needs Rotsi and Shuv. Like the Rebbe Rashab explains in the famous Maimer, Achrei Meis Tofresh Memtes. The Sikh is printed, I believe, in chapter, in Chelik Chavov, or Chelik Lamaralf. I think Chelik Chavov in Lekut Sikhis, And the Hesof is there. Uh, but the Sikh was said, Kapasha Kisisa Tofshin Memdalad. So if you look in any of the Sikhs from that year, Memdalad, say for Asikhs Tofshin Memdalad, or Teres Menachem Tofshin Memdalad, you'll find the Sikhs there. <coughs> it was edited by the Rebbe. And again, I believe it's also maybe printed even in now the new volume of 40 of the Kutis Sikhs. It may be there, I'm not positive. Regarding the second question, this is a good question. I believe Mepharshim talk about it. What was the din? Whether it was considered a mamish mesim and chisa mesim, or it was considered an extension since he did bring him back. I don't recall the different opinions on the matter. It all comes down to what this meant. It's not the only place this question is asked. Um, but the, regarding the Rebbe's pshat, how that would affect it, if someone's close on nefesh and he returned, you may say that there, there wasn't a misa, like a literal death in the physical sense of the word, even though it was an expiration of the soul. I don't know if that would have any bearing here. But it's a good question. I don't have an answer to it immediately. I would need to look it up, what effect it had. You could also argue that by then, it was, he, she wasn't Aguna because he did return right away. Uh, the question is, is it like a new person, or is he an extension of being the same Hemshech of who he was before? That's a good, interesting question. Let's go to the next topic. If anyone has any comments on this, please share. Okay. We're talking now about the month of Adar in general. Is there a source that says the month of Adar is good luck and that, if possible, one should postpone a court case until Adar? Absolutely. The Gemara says in Befedish that body Mazla, and that's why, if you're going to have a court case, it's good to do it because the Mazla of Eden is, is successful then. So that's a clear din. And the answer is yes. Now, another thing about the month of Adar, is it true that Haman picked the month of Adar for his genocidal plot because Adar was when Moses passed away? 
Same Gemara. Gemara also says that, which would indicate it's a bad luck month for the Jews. That's why Adam, Haman was very happy because when it fell in the month of other, he knew that Moshe had passed away. What he didn't know, however, the Gemara says that he was also born then. But wasn't Moses also born another, this individual asks? Is there a lesson here that all things we perceive as negative have a positive parallel counterpart? Absolutely. So you answered your own question. It's a complete Gemara. The Rebbe speaks about it in a number of places, especially in Chelek Tazayin, Tetzav Zayin, other beautiful sikha that the Rebbe said from the year Tov Shech of Zayin, 1967, where he discusses this at length and basically talks about these two sides of it, that even actually the passing of Moshe is also a Maila, because Astalkus of Atzadik is also a special day that brings blessings. But Haman was not aware and privy to all of this. And he discusses the difference between a birth and a, and a passing. And, um, and, but by bottom line, practically speaking, Haman was aware of the passing of Moshe, was not aware of his birth. That itself is discussed there, why, and, and details around that. Okay. So though this was completely focused on Purim, I want to just, since it was a timely event that happened this week, and quite a few of you wrote to me, so I'll just address that. And that is the, Mar- the Mars landing. NASA just successfully landed a rocket on Mars. Is there a spiritual significance to exploring places in outer space? In Mars and in, generally in outer space. Another person writes, being that a spaceship just landed on Mars, I have a question. Did the Rebbe once say it was possible that there was life on other planets? If there is life on other planets, do they have Torah and mitzvahs, or was Torah only given in our world on planet Earth? And if the Torah only exists on planet Earth, what if a Jewish astronaut landed on Mars? Would he still have to follow the Torah there? Very good. So yes, indeed. Shabbos Tvarim Chazain Tovshin Choftes, 1969. Let's take a travel back. Let's journey back. Let's travel back in time to that Fabrengen. The, it was the second time that the, the United States landed man on the moon. And the Rebbe was often, he would talk about events, especially science, other events, current events, and he spoke about it. And one of the questions he addressed was exactly that. Is there life on other planets? Because that was always the talk when they started landing on the moon and now on Mars. That was one of the big quests. We want to know, is there life on other planets? And the Rebbe actually said, yes, there's a Gemara, there's two Mepharshim commentaries, a Posik in, uh, in Shira's Devoida. Devoida said a Shira after the war with Sisra. And they won the war. She, says it, uh, she said it uh, at Phila. A Shira, a song of praise. And in it she says, V'oru maroiz, v'oru yeshveha. That Marois should be cursed and its inhabitants should be cursed. What's Marois? There are two two interpretations. One is a planet. One of the planets. Marois. One is a place on earth. But according to the first opinion, clearly, Marois, you could even pronounce it Mars. That there may be life, that says there's life on another planet. There were inhabitants that she cursed. Even the second opinion the Rebbe says, that doesn't interpret it that way, doesn't interpret it because it, this, it doesn't feel there's life on other planets. It has a different reason to explain Maroiz as being a geographical location on Earth. So one opinion says there is life on other planets, 
but at least I'm a raise. And the other will not disagree in principle, just doesn't hold that. This means, that's the meaning in this verse. However, what kind of life is the question? And the Rebbe continues. It would go into theological thorny situation if you said that there's human life with free will. Why? Because there's only one tater that was given on earth. If there's free will, that means that they have to have direction and guidance. And to say there's two taters, you can't say. There's only one mountain tater. So basically the conclusion is there, is, there is there could be life and there is life according to one opinion, but not life as we know it here. That was one of the things that Ebbe said then. So that brings me to the first question. Is there significance in exploring and lessons to be learned? There's no question that a human being has the power to do with technology unbelievable things. And we acknowledge it, we see it. So number one, it teaches us, as the Rebbe explains in different sikhs, the godless habayda. The godless habayda is seeing God's creations, studying it. But not seeing it as just out of curiosity, seeing it as part of God's masterful creation and design. The second thing to see that the human being was given the ability, the kifshuha, but not just to conquer, but to elevate to elevate the world and elevate the universe and elevate the solar systems. So if we indeed go to these other planets, and even if we establish stations there and we can establish life, it would be to elevate it. Everything God created in the world is for His honor. In some way, to honor the divine. So if a Jew does end up there, remember, that Jew came from earth. He didn't come from there. So there's a Teda on earth. The Rebbe spoke a number of times, especially once Sukkot. What do you do when you're in outer space or all the halachas are chal or not? For example, on the moon, can you make Kiddush Levana? What do you do? So that's a discussion, how to apply Teda in circumstances that are unlike earth, the ones in this atmosphere, in this on earth. But of course you have to bring God everywhere. God is everywhere. Who created it all? So the questions are going to have to be established and developed by by Poskim, just like we figured out what to do with different technologies, Shabbos elevators, genetic engineering, heart transplants, how to apply Teda, and as I said, in circumstances that may be different than it is on earth. So those are the answers to that. Let us, I'm going to do a follow-up. Do one follow-up. And then I shall also do see this question. Okay. Follow-up is, Bizbuza Eitzis. A few weeks ago, connection to the Basilegani Maimer corresponding this year to chapter 11 of the Friedrich Rebbe's Maimer that was delivered on Yud Shvat, 1950, chapter 11. And the Rebbe then explaining it in 1961 and 1981. I want to follow up on the topic of the, splur- the, the, the splurging of the treasures that you discussed that week. We are taught that all things in the physical world have a spiritual parallel. We can see a physical example of Bizbizo Eitzis, the splurging of the, of the treasures, when the U.S. government passed a few stimulus bills and dispensed trillions of dollars to help people during COVID. What is the spiritual parallel of Bizbizo Eitzis in our time? Spiritual parallel of the splurging of the treasures. So first of all, I don't know if the governmental uh, dispensation of money was, it goes in that category of splurging. You know, people got a $1,200 or whatever the amount was. 
They definitely gave out a lot. But remember, in the Maimri talks about splurging treasures that were never, ever revealed before. Not just giving out a lot of money. Things that no one had ever seen, that he only gives out when there's a Midas on the So yes, can you say it's an example? Look, we can find in everything a certain divine element and a lesson. So I'm not going to deny that. But the true splurging that he's referring to, and that's what I spoke about, was, was number one, the keiches that we receive. We have so many, fac- so many resources we have given today. The freedoms we have, the technologies we have to spread Yiddishkeit, to conquer the world. That never existed a while back. So that's, first of all, the first uh, expression of it. The second expression is all the chassidus that was taught. All to give us the strength to deal with ikvus and the Mashiach in the last days before Mashiach's <laughs> coming. And many other examples that one can find, the blessings we have. And we know we're told that the deepest secrets of Torah were revealed dafk in the later generations, right before the dawn. The darkest right before the dawn. Because we're getting a taste of Tehrasa Shal Mashiach. As the Rebbe explains, a number of places. A taste of the Eitzes, of the Chem de Gnuza, but even more the Eitzes, the deepest treasures of Tehra. To firstly strengthen us and give us the strength, like the Alter Rebbe's Moshul, that you crush the stone, the most precious stone of the king's crown, in order to save the child. And to give us the strength to be able to deal with not only our own challenges, but also spreading the light of Torah, mitzvahs, and godliness all over the world. Okay. With that, let me go to the Chassidus question, which is a question that has come up many times, Purim related. Can you elaborate on a statement that Rebbe once said that Yemika Purim is only Kippurim? A small revelation of the energy of Purim, which implies that Purim is the deeper, is deeper and more, more, more important holiday of the two. Thank you. Did you. Another person asked, did the Rebbe once say Yom Kippurim contains elements of Purim? I don't see the connection. Yom Kippur is a serious con- contemplative day, and Purim is an unbridled joyous day. So I spoke about this directly in episodes 84 and 299, but just to give a small taste, and really I encourage you to look there, it's actually from Tikkune Zayar. Cited in Chassidus, and the Rebbe explains it as well. Obviously, if you talk Minat Teireh, Achaz there's no day like Yom Kippur. Shabbos Shabbosin is Deich Shabbos, the holiest day of the year, going into the Holy of Holies. But Beruchni is there's an element in Purim that takes the Amshach of Yechideh, the deepest part of the soul that's revealed in Yom Kippur, and brings it even into food and meal and celebration. So, in that aspect, Purim has something that's even deeper. This is not in any way to minimize God forbid. And on the contrary, Purim got it from Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was first. But then once Purim came, and remember, Purim ratifies Matan Teda. You could ask a better question. Nothing greater than Matan Teda. And yet the Gemara says, V'kimu v'kibu ha-Yehudim. Kimu masha kibu Why? Because when Matan Teda, they understood so-called, you could argue, compelled the Jews to receive it. So they can have a complaint. We didn't willingly, because the Ebershter took the mountain and put it above them like a canopy. In a sense, threatened them. Condition, ultimatum. Comes Purim, and now they received it on their own. How could you say that? Purim is Midrabonon. Purim comes later. How could you say that? But in a certain aspect, Purim has that element. 
Remember, Yom Kippur is Matan Teda of Luchishnis, it's the end of Matan Teda. Matan Teda was given on the four, sixth or seventh of Sivan, what we celebrate Shvuz. 120 days later is Yom Kippur. After the Jews build the golden calf, Moshe gets forgiveness, and Yom Kippur gets the second tablets. And still we say, Purim is the consummation of it all. Even though Yom Kippur is also Mamata Lamayla, because the Jews do Tshuva, and, that, and yet we say that Purim, Purim is even deeper than that, because Purim has an element that permeates more, and even the physicality that we celebrate on the day of Purim. Through Suda, Shleich Monis, Matanus Lavienim, a physical celebration. The Rebbe sometimes compares Erev Yom Kippur to Purim, because Erev Yom Kippur you also have what Purim accomplishes through meals. That's the answer. Okay, so with this we conclude episode 345, special Purim edition of My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have taka first at Tesodr, new revelations in this lowest part of the world, the lower hemisphere. We should have celebration of Odr, Meshanich Nesodr, Mar and the marching into Purim. And Shetaka be Mismach Gula Purim, to Pesach, but Purim to the Gula Hamitiz Vashlema, the deepest and greatest joy of all. Everyone have a Freilich and Purim, a Freilich and Tomid. And after a year of so many challenges, which we will talk about more, we are able to say, V'napechu, the Yehudim, Esa Eire, V'simcha, V'sosin, V'yikar, an end to all the negative and only see the positive, just as Purim teaches us. Freilich and Purim, everyone. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.